So I'd like to begin my talk today with two historical anecdotes, both of which are structured around scenes of question asking and knowledge creation. The first is from Stanley Cavell's work of philosophy on the classical Hollywood melodrama, Contesting Tears, the Hollywood melodrama of the unknown woman. He describes an intimate exchange in which his mother, trying on outfits, asks Cavell and his father for their opinions. And this is a quote um, describing this kind of scenario. When my mother asked for an opinion from my father and me about a new garment or ornament she had on, a characteristic form she gave her question was, to Stella Dallas? The most frequent scene of the question was our getting ready to leave our apartment for the Friday night movies, by far the most important and reliable source of common pleasure for the three of us. Of course, the Stella Dallas he's referring to here is Barbara Stanwyck's profoundly moving character from the 1937 King Vidor production of the same name. So going to quick share an image from that film, if you're not familiar with this uh, pretty incredible film. Stella's tragedy throughout the film rests on her inability to dress and act appropriately, in short, to behave with proper etiquette. As this image shows, Stella has a propensity for over-adorning her body with clanking jewelry, ostentatious patterns, and gaudy hats. Cavell goes on to note that his mother is not here totally disassociating herself from Stella. Rather, as he puts it, quote, her question was concerned to ward off a certain obviousness of display, not to deny the demand to be noticed, end quote. To avoid ostentatious, provocative, intentional display, but remain noticed. Here, Cavell hits on the tension of etiquette's visual codes. He also beautifully articulates the way popular visual culture serves as a pedagogical tool of etiquette, for better or worse, that teaches us how to read aesthetic codes. Cinema, he says, is the most reliable source of pleasure for the Cavell family. It is also a primary site where his family, and particularly his mother, learns the ins and outs, the faux pas of etiquette. By asking whether her outfit is to Stella Dallas, Cavell's mother, like many regular cinema goers, has demonstrated that she already knows how to read etiquette, to read aesthetics for etiquette, to read cinema for etiquette. However, her persistent question to Stella Dallas points to a lacuna of etiquette's illusion of mastery. Cavell's mother, like other etiquette adherents, can never master etiquette, can never become fully literate in etiquette's codes. There must always be a question, an unfilled gap in your knowledge, a necessary recourse to the opinions of others in order to verify your social acceptability. Etiquette's seductive allure of social and aesthetic mastery is only ever elusive and elusive. Our second scene of question asking and knowledge formation comes from a pretty remarkable series of advertisements for um, Kotex hygiene products published in women's magazines in the late 1940s and into the 1950s. Each of these ads is headed with the bold question, are you in the know? These ads are also importantly designed as etiquette quizzes equating feminine hygiene with proper manners and comportment. This is the top half of a single full page advertisement. So this ad from Good Housekeeping's February 1948 um, issue asks its readers to consider the appropriateness of yawning in public and dressing up for a public event. On the issue of yawning, Kotex observes that, quote, a smooth gal will cover those yawns to spare her glamour and etiquette rating. And this is the bottom half here. I've kind of decapitated these people, but they're all kind of young looking, Bobby Soxer type teenage white folks. Um, on the question of dressing up for events, Kotex advises its readers to, quote, err on the casual side, at least you're less conspicuous. Finally, tacked on to the end of this lengthy, wordy advert is a celebration of Kotex sanitary napkins or menstruation pads ability to prevent revealing outlines. 
Uh, Kotex's main point of pride throughout this series of adverts, and this is kind of the tagline that pops up in every single advertisement, is its ability to hide the outline of pads that might show through your clothing, its ability to restrain the potential unruliness of a menstruating body. As with Cavell's anecdote, there is here a desire to walk the line between display and inconspicuousness. You don't want to be completely ignored, but you do want to prevent revealing outlines. Etiquette's visual codes are all about strategic restraint and discipline here. These ads also gesture to exclusivity through its fundamental question, are you in the know? To be in the know is to be literate in etiquette's aesthetic codes, to be enfolded into the esteemed inner circle of white polite society. To be in the know means you can read etiquette for its aesthetic codes, just as Cavell's mother can read cinema for etiquette. <laughs> My dissertation research addresses the long ignored concept of etiquette and its relation to popular aesthetic forms, particularly classical Hollywood cinema of the post-World War II period. I believe that etiquette and its codes are not just narratively thematized in cinema of this period, though etiquette does come up as a narrative structure quite often, rather etiquette informs and shapes the very forms and aesthetics of post-World War II American cinema. In this talk, I'll be addressing two aesthetic moments from the 1946 film, The Harvey Girls, that encode etiquette in their formal structures. The first is a form of looking between women that encourages a kind of reading or scan of feminine counterparts for their adherence to or deviation from etiquette's codes. Etiquette thus encourages the passing of judgments between women. In The Harvey Girls, two groups of women, the upright, proper Harvey House waitresses and the more sensual and unruly Alhambra burlesque dancers, are often visually opposed to each other through these exchanges of looks. The film aesthetically encourages these women to read each other for etiquette and either accept or expel each other based on their visual codes. The film's editing works to both bind these women together in an intimate act of reading and to contradictorily hold them apart by virtue of a cut. The second aesthetic moment is a moment of tension between mechanized discipline and chaotic fluidity, a tension that etiquette seeks to resolve by effacing any moments of unformed or undisciplined aesthetics that momentarily burst through the film structure. Ultimately, I will examine a single musical number titled The Train Must Be Fed to argue that the film affirms etiquette's domination over and normalization of aesthetic codes by constantly laboring to efface unstructured aesthetic moments. But first, however, let's take a step back and examine etiquette itself more closely. Why study etiquette? What can etiquette tell us about our everyday, our ordinaries? What exactly is etiquette's relationship to aesthetics, to cinema, and to femininity? What, in fact, is etiquette? So etiquette in its colloquial usage today is a kind of system of rigid aesthetic and behavioral codes is thought to have arisen in the 18th century. The publication of the Earl of Chesterfield's letters to his son on the art of becoming a man of the world and a gentleman is often considered the first modern etiquette guide. In this guide, the Earl of Chesterfield urges his illegitimate son to pay attention to what he terms the lowest things, such as dancing and dress, so as to elevate himself in society. Even in its beginnings then, modern etiquette was constructed as a means of attaining social mobility through literacy, the ability to read social and aesthetic codes. And in this uh, book, um, it basically argues that if you adhere to proper forms of etiquette, the illegitimacy of his son's birth won't matter so much and he might be able to overcome this. So um, etiquette plays this really important social role. Despite its rich history, etiquette has long been ignored in humanities research. Its brawnier counterpart, ethics, has been taken up across millennia. Though etiquette structures our everyday behaviors, from the way we dress, to the way we eat, to the way we greet each other, very little work has taken up the subject, and even less work has examined etiquette's intersection with aesthetics. 
When etiquette is addressed, it is often approached as a kind of feminized concept that must be redeemed and rescued on the basis of its femininity alone. This has occurred despite the popularity of etiquette guides written for men throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. But due to the arrival of Emily Post's significant tome titled simply Etiquette in 1922, North American culture's desperate attempts to rein in feminine transgressiveness, and the growing significance of the housewife figure in the 20th century, etiquette has been looked at as a primarily feminine form of domestic art. The few theorists who have examined etiquette have seen the concept as a victim of its feminization and have sought to prove that etiquette is more than its feminization suggests. For instance, in Scap and Seitz's recent essay collection on etiquette, they argue that while ethics embodies, quote, the traditional values favored by metaphysics, order, truth, rationality, mind, masculinity, depth, reality, etiquette pertains to metaphysics' familiar divisive list of hazards and rejects, arbitrariness, mere opinion, irrationality, the body, femininity, surface, appearance. They go on to state that, quote, ethics is taken to be the site of life's real conflicts, while etiquette remains trapped within the shallow realm of mere appearance. This shallow realm of mere appearance is a space that many etiquette writers want to disavow. Scap and Seitz themselves wish to prove through their collection of essays that, quote, manners are morals. Similarly, in Karen Storr's recent work on manners, she defends the idea that, quote, good moral character is enhanced and completed by good manners, end quote. Even writers of etiquette guides have been easy, eager to prove that etiquette is not all surface, but has a profound moral import, in short, has depth. So etiquette's often approached through this binary of surface and depth, um, frivolity and seriousness. In Elsa Maxwell's 1951 etiquette book, she argues that, quote, there is, if you wish to waste a lot of good time listening to it, a lot of mumbo jumbo about etiquette. It tends every last syllable of it to give the impression that etiquette is a complex and secret form of conduct understood only by those whose families are very venerated and old or those who are very rich, which of course is utter nonsense. Instead, Maxwell says that etiquette is simply, quote, a fancy word for simple kindness. It is, in short, a moral way of being in the world. Lillian Eichler's 1946 The New Book of Etiquette makes a similar claim. Eichler argues that, quote, etiquette goes much deeper than the mere surface conformity to established rules and conventions. Etiquette is instead a regard for the rights of others. These writers, whether they be best-selling etiquette guide writers or contemporary scholars, all have a desire to save etiquette from implications of superficiality, artifice, and femininity. These commendable and important desires to prove that feminized objects are not just frivolous or unworthy of sustained critical attention, nevertheless seem to restage a disdain for the superficial, a fear that an object close to you might be labeled feminine. Though these authors try to save etiquette from its own surface aesthetics, we must ask, what happens if we attend specifically to etiquette's shallow realm of mere appearance? What if we rest at the surface and take seriously the superficial? This is the basis of my work on etiquette. In other words, I think it is a tad simplistic to try and wholeheartedly save etiquette to produce it as a good object that simply and straightforwardly enhances our somehow already pristine moral inner lives. Though etiquette and morality are definitely intertwined, and I can speak more to this, etiquette does have a life at the surface of things in the realm of the visual and the aesthetic. Etiquette can be artificial and insincere. We need to think only of certain people we all know who harbor morally questionable values such as xenophobia or racist and sexist beliefs, yet behave with a kind of irreproachable politeness on the surface. 
And in classical Hollywood comedies and dramas of the post-war period, there are often these kind of gold-digging, social-climbing women who outwardly entrance their worlds with, with charm and grace and etiquette, but harbor indecent ambitions within. And All About Eve is perhaps the most well-known of these films and one that I'm sure many of you are quite familiar with. Karen Storr, who I mentioned earlier, she has a book called On Manners, she would argue that these types of characters actually behave rudely because they behave immorally. Their surface et etiquette, so the politeness they present to the world, is not the real etiquette, since etiquette is tied to the deep inner life of morality. However, Storr misses what theorist Jonathan Goldberg has pointed out that, quote, construction is not repression, it is reality, end quote. Surface etiquette is not fake etiquette. The artificial is not necessarily unreal, but helps to form our realities. By ignoring the surface of etiquette, its artifice, the way it shapes our visual culture, we actually efface its complexity. My research takes seriously the way etiquette functions at the surface of things as a series of aesthetic and social codes requiring exclusive knowledge and expertise. I'm interested in the way etiquette constructs an inner circle of literacy that has historically often excluded people from working classes and non-white communities. I'm interested in the way etiquette shapes our visual culture through its emphasis on aesthetic codes. In this way, I'm taking a page out of Raoul Vanagem's situationist work, Treatise on Etiquette for the Younger Generations, in which he states that, quote, the surest chances of liberation lie in what is most familiar. The living reality of non-adaptation to the world is always crouched, ready to spring. Etiquette is our familiar, our everyday, our ordinary. Its codes dictate our appearance, our behavior, and importantly, the way we read the world. And it also shapes how we judge ourselves and how we judge others. By examining and analyzing what is most familiar, etiquette, we might find clues as to how our visual culture is organized and ordered, how we survive and navigate etiquette's harsh expectations, and how etiquette works to create groups, to categorize people. Given my interest in the codified visual and aesthetic nature of etiquette, my theory of etiquette is traversed through Michel Foucault's work on discipline and his discussions of order and knowledge creation. In Discipline and Punish, Foucault describes discipline as, quote, an art of the human body. Discipline, he says, produces docile bodies that possess economic utility, but are without the force of political disobedience. It does this by fragmenting the body, by attending to the smallest actions and gestures the body can perform. In short, and this is another quote, discipline is a political anatomy of detail. Etiquette too is an art of the human body predicated on the smallest details. How to hold your fork, which colors to wear to a formal luncheon, how to introduce yourself to someone older and more venerated, etc. Importantly for our discussion of cinema, disciplinary society is also predicated on an unbalanced relationship of vis visibility. Those in power watch and the powerless are watched. This is best represented by Bentham's Panopticon, a prison design in which prisoners are constantly watched from a central tower but cannot return this act of surveillance. The effect of this design is, quote, to induce in the inmate a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power, end quote. In other words, as Foucault has famously declared, visibility is a trap. Etiquette works as a disciplinary mechanism and then it fragments the body, produces mechanized movements and asks subjects to regulate their own behavior, thereby internalizing disciplinary society's expectations. However, etiquette also asks that we watch and learn and judge. Outside of these prison systems, subjects of etiquette are asked to watch others, those who are etiquette adept, who possess expertise in the ways of social comportment and grace in order to better discipline their own behavior and aesthetics. Throughout the 20th century, these etiquette subjects have predominantly been women and even more particularly white women. 
women are encouraged to look at and read other women for etiquette, either to emulate them or to judge and expel them. Women are not prevented from looking, but are encouraged to look at certain things and in certain ways. Etiquette has been used as a disciplinary mechanism to assuage any rebellious feelings in middle-class white women by promising social and economic mobility and the comforting embrace of social acceptance. The only price is a real laborious training in the discipline of etiquette. Thus, while the Panopticon trains its prisoners by constantly reminding them that they are under surveillance without offering them the ability to return this surveillance gaze, etiquette asks its subjects to survey, survey others, to learn from and read other people, particularly other women, in order to shape one's own knowledge and performance of etiquette's codes. By learning how to look, subjects of etiquette learn how to read etiquette's aesthetic codes for success or failure, for proper politeness or dreadful faux pas. Thus, etiquette encourages women to engage in a toxic competitiveness enacted through their exchange of glances. Etiquette and its teachings on looking, then, offers strategies for navigating the trap of visibility, strategies that come at the cost of understanding and equality between women, as the Harvey Girls will demonstrate. In this way, etiquette's relation to the aesthetic field bears some similarity to the way Foucault discusses the creation of order and categories of knowledge. Order for Foucault is, quote, that which has no existence except in the grid created by a glance, an examination, a language, end quote. Thus, order is an imagined aesthetic structure, it's a grid, created in part through looking, through a glance. This sentiment is echoed in Michael Warner's Publics and Counterpublics when he observes that, quote, the direction of our glance can constitute our social world. Etiquette's forms of looking categorize and order people into classes, classes that intersect with hierarchical identities of race and gender. Etiquette uses forms of looking to divide people into polite society and the cast-offs, the excluded. We can think of the way we discuss looking in relation to politeness through compliments such as, you look so pretty today, or reprimands like, don't stare, it's rude. Etiquette is a visual language, an ordinary language, a disciplinary language that moves ideas of discipline from masculine spaces like prisons and the military to feminine spaces like dinner parties, afternoon teas, and baby showers. By looking at how etiquette teaches women to look at others, at each other, at themselves, we can perhaps understand how 20th century visual culture, including cinema, disciplined and trained feminine subjects. More specifically, my research examines post-World War II American cinema's visual codes of etiquette. I argue that etiquette's codes are contained not only in these film's narratives, but are embedded directly into the film's aesthetics. The 1946 film The Harvey Girls contains two particularly salient moments of etiquette aesthetics. Before I examine this film, however, let's briefly discuss why classical Hollywood cinema, and more particularly cinema of the post-World War II era, is a particularly rich site for etiquette's aesthetic labor. Etiquette, I'll show, is a social and aesthetic device that shapes post-war cinema's various formal elements, from editing to cinematography. As I've been saying, etiquette is made up of a series of aesthetic codes, what to wear, what to say, how to eat. Cinema too, and particularly classical Hollywood cinema, is grounded in aesthetic codes. Any fan of cinema knows the name of certain aesthetic devices, such as the shot reverse shot, the close up, and the tracking shot. Importantly, however, classical Hollywood style is often thought of as a style-less style, a style predicated on hiding its own labor, as theorists like Noel Birch and Jane Foyer have argued. So we have terms like continuity editing that refer to the ways editing and cinematography in classical filmmaking hide and, in psychoanalytic film theory's terms, suture over potential gaps in its style. Etiquette and classical Hollywood's codes then both attempt to naturalize themselves, to hide the labor and artifice behind these seemingly arbitrary codes. Some neo-formalist scholars of classical cinema, like David Bordwell, have referred to its codes as norm-bound practices or norm-governed patterns of behavior in an effort to explain the cinema's preference for rigid 
rigidly structured aesthetics. Bordwell has systematically described and categorized many stylistic and narrative devices that have created the conventions of classical filmmaking. However, the social and political reasons for and the philosophical theoretical potential of these norms are unsatisfactorily deprivileged in favor of a drive toward categorizing and defining aesthetic elements. These norms just are. Other film theorists have moved toward ideological critique and psychoanalytic discourses to address what they see as desires and fantasies resting below this apparent zero style cinema and another kind of um, uh, appeal to ideas of depth. Laura Mulvey's essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, is perhaps the most famous example of this form of scholarship. In her essay, Mulvey argues that beneath the seemingly innocuous zero-style shots of female bodies in classical cinema lies a deep fantasy of masculine sadomasochistic desire. Again, however, Mulvey and other like-minded theorists attempt to redeem the surface by pointing to hidden depths. It is my contention that cultural aesthetic codes of etiquette actually structure classical cinema's surface aesthetics, its superficial zero-style appearance. Etiquette, like classical Hollywood cinema, is often taken as natural. Its codes are not seen as arbitrary aesthetic devices aimed at discipline, categorization, and exclusivity, but are rather taken as organic ways of being in the world. In my dissertation, codes like the shot reverse shot and the tracking shot will be shown to carry out the aims and intentions of etiquette. Etiquette's political and social power will be shown to exist at the surface, at the level of aesthetics and the visual. Etiquette and its attendant ideologies exist at the surface of classical cinematic form. Classical Hollywood cinema of the post-war period in, in particular is a provocative place to look for these connections between etiquette and cinematic form, as etiquette was constantly changing and permutating during this time. With the rise of a dominant white suburban middle class in this period, suburbanite, suburbanites became the kind of tastemakers of the era, which kind of displaced the old money families uh, that had determined etiquette's codes and expectations for decades. Buffets started replacing formal dinner parties, which is something that a lot of articles come out about in that period. The, the idea of the buffet as this like stab in the heart of the traditional dinner party and um, hired help in the home, which often perpetuated race-based economic divisions started diminishing, though of course it didn't disappear. All of these changes can be traced in women's magazine publications of the period. And I can speak about this more in the Q&A if anyone would like to hear about it. Etiquette maven Emily Post's assistant during this time. So I'm sure you've heard of Emily Post, the kind of big purveyor of etiquette in the 20th century. She had an assistant named Anne Kent that often did interviews for her or in place of her at this time. So Anne Kent in one interview lamented this perceived loss of elegance in American society in Cosmopolitan in 1950. There's a beauty in formality that is largely missing from our present day mode of living, she says. The loss of etiquette for Kent is a loss of an aesthetic structure of beauty. This is echoed by changing gender roles, changes that would eventually erupt in the second wave feminist movements of the 60s and 70s. As Anne Kent goes on to say in the same interview, this is a quote, feminine independence has been paid for out of the currency of male chivalry, and many a woman seems to believe the purchase isn't worth the price. End quote. It's very dramatic. The post-war woman is becoming so independent that in retaliation, men are withholding their chivalrous behavior. These changing gender norms were counterbalanced by a return to traditionalism and much popular cinema of the period. It's a cinema dominated by housewives, sexually deviant femme fatales in need of punishment, and bubbly bobby soxers. Etiquette became an aesthetic strategy for promoting traditionalism, for reaffirming the pre-existing order of things. The Harvey Girls is one such film that effaces unruliness by idealizing etiquette as a desirable white feminine art form and by manifesting etiquette's codes at the level of form. Indeed, the film aestheticizes etiquette through the network of looks shared between women and through its attempt to mechanize on-screen bodies and camera movements while effacing any potential bubbling up of unruly aesthetics or unformed aesthetics. 
As I've said previously, etiquette is predicated on an illusion of total mastery and expertise gained efficiently and effectively. Many etiquette guides of the post-war period claim an encyclopedic knowledge of eti etiquette, but they also claim that etiquette's many codes are easy to learn. By extension, etiquette asks that its adherents develop a chameleonic adaptability to the world, the ability to socially adapt to any given situation. A possible consequence of failing this impossible expectation and failure is truly an inevitable outcome is social exclusion. Thus, post-war etiquette sets up a binary structure between those in the know, the etiquette adept, and those cast out, excluded. The Harvey Girls sets up this binary by pitting two groups of women against one another, two groups simultaneously held apart and joined together by their exchanges of looks, their acts of reading each other. The film also supports etiquette's argument for discipline as a gateway to mastery by effacing and suppressing any unformed chaotic aesthetics that occur throughout the film by promoting an aesthetics of disciplined mechanization. So if I had to describe the Harvey Girls in a single sentence, it would be a technicolor fantasy of American imperialist nostalgia. The film is a romantic reimagining of the real Harvey Girls entry into the untamed wilds of the American Southwest. The Harvey Girls were waitresses who worked at chains of Harvey House restaurants all over America in the late 19th century and into the 20th. They were seen as prim and proper young women who brought civility into these wild spaces due to their embodiment of an idealized white feminine etiquette. The film's opening title cards indicate its stance on the Harvey Girls. I'm just gonna share once more so that you can see it here. The first reads, when Fred Harvey pushed his chain of restaurants farther and farther west along the lengthening tracks of the Santa Fe, he brought with him one of the first civilizing forces this land had known, the Harvey girls. The second goes on to declare that these winsome waitresses conquered the West as surely as Dave, the Davy Crockett's and the Kit Carson's, not with powder horn and rifle, but with a beefsteak and a cup of coffee. Finally, we have this sentimental dedication to these unsung pioneers whose successors today still carry on in the same tradition. We sincerely dedicate this motion picture. From the outset then, the film equates feminine manners and etiquette with civility and with the American imperialist project. Etiquette becomes a quite explicit narrative thread throughout the film. For instance, after an opening song from a husky voice to Judy Garland, the film fades to a young woman reading a pamphlet on a train titled Fred Harvey Service Regulations Instructions for Waitresses. You can see that here. She reads aloud that the Harvey girls will be expected to provide honest, excellent, hygienic, cleanly, prompt, and cheerful service at all times. Clearly, this pamphlet is both an employee manual and an etiquette guide. And I think there is an interesting connection uh, between the two. The reader lets out a whoosh of breath, acknowledging the near impossible expectations set for these simple waitresses. An older woman appears soon after to guide the girls. Immediately, they gaze at this older woman with rapt attention, forming a sort of tableau vivant, the aesthetic structure, importantly, that Foucault aligns most strongly with discipline. This is the kind of tableau they strike here. The woman is revealed to be Miss Bliss, a sort of head waitress, chaperone, and embodiment of etiquette expertise. There's one thing you girls have yet to learn, she says, again evoking a language of pedagogy and edification. A Harvey girl is more than a waitress. Whenever, wherever, wherever, sorry, wherever a Harvey house appears, civilization is not far behind. You girls are the symbol and the promise of the order that is to come. The order that is to come, this sounds a good deal like Foucault's disciplinary society. The Harvey girls are meant to both impose and construct order, categorizing others, and find their place in this order themselves. They are disciplined and they are disciplined. 
Thus, we have one form of looking between women here, and this form of looking of kind of rapt attention and admiration will be contrasted greatly throughout the film as these Harvey girls learn to read and judge other women based on their adherence to etiquette. To bring back the Foucault quote I used earlier, order has, quote, no existence except in the grid created by a glance, an examination, a language, end quote. By examining how female characters mobilize their glances throughout the film, we can trace how etiquette creates and affirms order. The first time the film's two primary groups of women encounter each other is directly after the Harvey girls disembark from the train that has carried them into the tiny frontier town of Sandrock. The Harvey girls, not yet in their uniforms, are instead dressed in muted colors like brown, gray, and dark orange. Their clothes have been pressed and cleaned, and their hair is perfectly coiffed. They are ideals of restrained, disciplined white femininity. As the girls stand on the dusty ground next to Sandrock's makeshift train platform, they catch the eyes of another group of women positioned above them on a balcony jutting out from the Alhambra saloon. So you can see that kind of counter tableau right here. These women could not look and act more different. Instead of standing in rigid upright postures, they slouch and stand with their hips jutting out, emphasizing their curves. Instead of wearing muted, unnoticeably noticeable colors, they wear tacky neon burlesque dresses with ornate feathers and flowery ornaments in their hair. They are indeed much too Stella Dallas. Though the two groups of women are standing very far apart from one another, separated by flat distance and height, they appear able to read and judge each other quickly. The Harvey girls immediately adopt facial expressions that barely conceal their profound dislike of these much more unruly women. This is the reverse shot that returns their look. Despite the camera positioning itself far away from the Alhambra dancers, their defiant poses and intimidating stillness radiates hatred as well. This is a hatred based on the apparently rigid, codified, and perhaps socially desirable etiquette that the Harvey girls bring to this space. Just before this exchange, in a conversation in the Alhambra bar, the lead dancer, M, played by Angela Lansbury, laments that the influx of Harvey girls might be bad for business, as she's heard that in other towns, all the frontiersmen ended up marrying these waitresses. Thus, by bringing refined, codified feminine etiquette into this space, the Harvey girls also bring the rigidity of heterosexist divisions, a more kind of proper, quote unquote, sexual conduct. The exchange of glances when these two groups meet each other is then an instantiation of etiquette's method of reading others for propriety. The Harvey girls immediately resent the Alhambra dancers for their lack of feminine etiquette, while the Alhambra dancers resent the Harvey girls for their excess of etiquette their lack of kind of freedom. This network of glances binds the two groups closely in an intimate act of reading, but also holds them apart, encourages the abjection of the impolite or overly polite other. This exchange of glances becomes a visual motif throughout the film, perpetuating and affirming a degree of competitiveness. We can see it again in these two images in which the Alhambra dancers look down derisively on the refined hyper-feminine ballet dancing of Sid Charisse's character, Deborah. So we have a kind of longer shot of these Alhambra dancers all dressed in their uh, silk and satin nightgowns looking down on Judy Garland and Sid Charisse, and then a closer shot of this kind of active glaring. Editing here works to both join and to hold apart. The women are brought together through meeting each other's gazes, through their looks being edited together. However, they also remain irremediably separate, separated by a cut, cut off from each other, a visual and a social cut. It is, this editing suggests, impossible that such different groups of women become friends or allies. The reason for this difference, for these cuts separating their looks, is etiquette. A difference of social comportment, a difference of propriety, a difference of reading and literacy, a difference of 
discipline. Competition and dislike are inevitable between women who behave in such starkly opposed ways. However, and importantly, the film tries to resolve these issues between the women by the end of the film. It is a false rev resolution and one that gestures to the ways popular culture and theory alike have tried to disavow the importance of etiquette's superficiality. So at the end of the film, after a series of misadventures, the Harvey House restaurant has been burned down. The Harvey girls then move into the Alhambra saloon, transforming it into another Harvey House and effectively running the Alhambra dancers out of town after they've kind of now colonized their space in this sort of allegorical stand-in for uh, white colonialism. <clears throat> Sitting on the train that will whisk Em and her burlesque allies away to the next untamed frontier town, lead Harvey girl Susan, played by Judy Garland, comments that she and Em, and by synecdoche, the Harvey girls and the Alhambra dancers, aren't so different in the end. After all, Susan comments, it's only a matter of style, isn't it? I mean, some people wear one kind of dress and other people wear another. It's only a matter of style. In this flippant comment, Susan waves away her differences with M and the Alhambra dancers. It's really just a matter of which dress you wear, she concludes. Through this comment, Susan suggests that the inner moral lives of these two groups of women are similarly pure and good. She only got distracted by style and failed to look deeper. This claim seems to be aesthetically suggested by the fact that these women are contained in a single shot, having overcome the differences that the film's editing had previously instantiated. However, the fact of the matter is that style has led to the expulsion of the Alhambra girls from Sandrock. Their inability to conform, to become as disciplined as the Harvey girls, has forced them out of their homes. Importantly, we might, we might also say that the Alhambra dancers stand in for the indig indigenous communities who occupied frontier spaces before being forced out, abjected, for their perceived inability to conform to codes of etiquette, to behave in a civil, i.e. white, way. It's only a matter of style effectively disavows and effaces the work of that style, and by extension etiquette, has done in the film. Etiquette has created order, Yes, by expelling the disordered and the unruly from its midst. Etiquette is constantly stabilizing and or effacing currents of chaos and unruliness by imposing order. The Harvey Girls uses its aesthetics to enact these moments of erasure too. It uses its surface, its visual codes to efface any instances of disetiquette. There's one particular musical sequence from this film that captures the way etiquette both imposes order and defaces disorder through aesthetics. This musical number titled The Train Must Be Fed depicts the Harvey girls' education in the ways of etiquette as they prepare to serve a group of men arriving on the next train into town. The Train Must Be Fed consists of the three members of staff in charge of the Harvey girls, the male restaurant manager, Miss Bliss, and the head cook, delineating and expressing through musical language all the rules of etiquette that the Harvey girls must obey. And I'll play a brief clip from the number now and I apologize for the closed captioning. I don't think that the software is quite ready to keep up with um, this number. Here we go. Miss Bliss? Yes, Susan. You've got yourself another Harvey girl. The Harvey system, I must say, primarily pertains to the absolute perfection in the way we feed the trains. Perfection in the dining room, perfection in the dorm. We even want perfection in the Harvey uniform. Stout black shoes to keep a sense of humor. Please confine your underwear to camisole and rumor. Black shirt waist, cuffs neat and trim. The apron must be spotless from the collar to the hem. The uniform must be just right, but Mr. Fred has said that uniform or no uniform, the train must be fed. You're looking just as pretty as a Spanish omelette. But now God will learn you how to get the table set. First comes the plate. 
Then the cup was sassy. The knife and fork and here's your spoon. The nasty pie is a glassy. You serve to the left. You take off to the right. Give them ginger peach your service or you'll spoil their appetite. Give them ginger peach your service or their appetite will spoil. Last night it's great to be a boy. Receive the service wire from train number seven. Dining room for 44, counter room for 11. You ladies, don't be nervous. There's no need to lose your head. But one thing we cannot forget, the trains must be fed. The train must be dead. The train must be fed. Come lightning, come drizzle, come sleet, come cycle, come earthquake. The people gotta eat. Come dunder, come blitzer. Again, we repeat. The train must be fed. All right, so I have a lot of questions about some of the things that happened in this number, like uh, how stout black shoes can confer, can uh, conserve your sense of humor, but I'll leave that there. Um, so as you might immediately notice from this sequence, the number equates etiquette with the mechanicity of train movement. The Harvey girls are not just there to feed the train, but also to operate as effectively and efficiently as railroad locomotives, fragmenting their bodies so as to discipline every last gesture. This mechanicity is captured in the staccato rhythms of the film's lyrics, the quick whip pans that move from dressing lessons to tableware lessons, and the Harvey girls' regimented, formal, nearly stiff dancing motions. The process of learning is divided between the etiquette experts and their students, the Harvey girls, who often look to their guides with intrigued and sometimes desperate expressions, as you can see here. The train must be fed importantly, never questions the Harvey girls' eventual mastery of these codes and customs. Encyclopedic and thorough and quick as, these, as this knowledge appears, the Harvey girls seem to execute their objectives with confidence and perfectly precise choreography. As the number progresses, the Harvey girls accent their uniform bodies and uniform dance movements with harmonious choral singing about the great privileges of being a Harvey girl. In one such refrain, they note that the apron must be spotless and must have a proper swirl. That's the first requirement of a Harvey girl. As they sing this line, they cross the room in two groups traveling in opposite directions. While crossing, they turn around to demonstrate the, quote, proper swirl of their aprons. This lyric and movement demonstrate the ways etiquette seeks to both regiment and mechanize social and aesthetic behaviors while aligning the labor behind these mechanizations with the appearance of fluidity and prettiness. A swirling apron is indeed a pretty sight, but this swirl must be controlled, restrained. It must be proper. Etiquette then even reaches the movements of our garments. This, is not, this not only sets up an ideal of eventual mastery of etiquette, but it also suggests aesthetically that etiquette's superficiality, the proper swirl of an apron, for instance, conveys a sense of normalcy, a white feminine normalcy, to be precise, that can be perhaps achieved through disciplined movements. Etiquette is mechanized and laborious, but must appear pretty, fun, and natural, a proper swirl. I want to draw attention, however, to what the camera is doing throughout this number. Through all these strange whip pans and elusive edits to make the camera appear as if it's moving through floors and walls, there is again a strong sense of mechanicity. As I've mentioned, these camera movements appear to support the numbers claim that etiquette can be mechanized and efficient as a train. However, in these quick, seemingly regimented camera movements, there are brief moments of blurring, of a total colorful chaos that bursts through the codified and regimented music, lyrics, dancing, and aesthetics of this number. So there's one example of this moment and another. 
These blurs, I argue, are representative of the unformed, unordered gray areas that destabilize etiquette's claim to thoroughness, mastery, and expertise. Etiquette and its paraphernalia, like magazine how-to articles and educational films, argue that all the codes and aesthetics of the social world can be mastered and learned if one only looks and pays attention. The result of successful etiquette learning, of becoming etiquette adept, means that you can attain a chameleonic level of adaptability. And adaptability was a key kind of idealized attribute for post-war white women. As one 1946 article from Woman's Day puzzlingly titled, How to Be a Girl, puts it, the post-war girl should be, quote, that lovely smooth job with the slow smile who can hold her own in any world, end quote. The post-war girl must become etiquette adept to achieve adaptability. She must become a master of social and aesthetic codes. However, etiquette is always haunted by a lacuna of incompleteness. The project of etiquette can never be completed. There can never be enough rules to cover any and every potential social situation. This lacuna, this incomplete incompleteness, gestures to the chaos and disorganized nature of social life that etiquette tries to disavow to efface. The blurring in the train must be fed captures this chaos, this perpetual fluidity of motion that it haunts etiquette's desire for and project of codification, regimentation, and discipline. These blurs call to mind Foucault's discussion of what he terms the middle region between the conventional use of forms of order and philosophical and scientific theories for why order exists. The zone between these regions is, according to Foucault, quote, more confused, more obscure, and probably less easy to analyze, end quote. This is the region of meta-reflexivity, the region of questioning and critiquing existing forms of order in our cultures and societies, orders such as etiquette. Foucault goes on to describe this middle region as, quote, anterior to words, perceptions, and gestures, end quote. These moments of pure blurring of color and movement without sense and order are aesthetic encapsulations of a region prior to gestures and language, or at least outside of gestures and language. However, these moments are never left hanging open and unformed. Their chaos is never permitted to permeate the film, to disrupt its ordered aesthetics. Rather, these moments of blurring are always framed by preceded and succeeded by order and form, by gesture and codes. The film does not linger in the moment of the blur, for it, in, it insists that it is just a moment, a moment that passes into the normalcy and discipline of etiquette. Order always wins out, blurs are made into legible, knowable, readable gestures and shapes. We can think through this most literally with the example of the swirling skirt. So we'll come back to this for a second. As the Harvey girls demonstrate the way their skirts move, a moment appears of potential disruption. These skirts dis, uh, erupt into disordered blurs, moments of pure movement. However, the Harvey girls merely end the swirl and step back into the regimented lines, affirming the propriety of the swirl, ensuring that their skirt has a proper swirl, as opposed to a, an improper, improper swirl, whatever that might be. The film then tries to retroactively efface moments of unformed, unstructured aesthetics. It insists that those moments never were, or at least were always bound to end teleologically in the comfort and normalcy of etiquette. <clears throat> Through attending to this film's construction of looks between women and the editing that sustains those looks and to its effacement of chaos and disorder, we can trace the way etiquette is constantly at work. Etiquette does not labor behind the scenes, but works on the scene, in the foreground of the scene. Etiquette is the primary reason for the competitiveness between the Harvey girls and the Alhambra dancers, for the editing that both binds them in judgment and holds them apart. Etiquette is the reason for an aesthetics of mechanization and discipline that effaces any potentially productive undercutting of the film's imperialist agenda. The film's attempt in its conclusion to disavow the importance of style and etiquette inadvertently gestures to the important analytical sites these concepts present. The superficial, the polite, the ordinary, the familiar. These are all areas that should not be disavowed or quickly redeemed, but are sites for rich analytical critical work. 
The pursuit of etiquette in its ideal form can never be completed. However, etiquette continues to shape popular visual cultures. By attending to the surface of these cultures, by reading their codes, we can trace how etiquette works. We can trace and find the labor of etiquette. For etiquette is always at work. It is now time to examine the work of etiquette. Thank you.